This show was brought to you by Ouch My Ego. OuchMyEgo.com Hey everyone, Andrew Jemetsko here. Andrew Bargeron, that's my real name. Jemetsko's my art name. You guys should be familiar with Jemetsko by now. Jemetsko.com. T-shirts, art, etc. Anyway, thanks for tuning in. Please allow me to give you a rundown of the history of what did we just watch. It all started when Michael Cook asked me to be on his Retro Rocket Entertainment podcast. He enjoyed recording that episode so much that he asked if I wanted to develop a separate show with him. And I agreed, and we developed the Video Night podcast. Eventually, we tightened that Video Night format to be a discussion about four films per episode that followed a similar theme. And for a good while, I edited the show and honed my skills. Then came my itch for discussing a stranger film than the ones that we were usually profiling. And Cook, for a short while, went on hiatus, but asked me if I would keep the content coming, which was my opportunity to backdoor this little show that, for a very short time, I called What Did I Just Watch? And soon, I spun it off into a separate show, hosted on OuchMyEgo.com. In those early days, another show of the same name asked me kindly to change my show from I to something else. Though the official original title was Ouch My Ego Presents, What Did I Just Watch? But the other show was still concerned about losing listenership to me, of all people. And they also asked for a bit of promo exchange. I plugged their show, they plugged mine. So I obliged, and yet they never did plug my show. So quick edits took out those promos. But I did keep the name change, as the inspiration for the show was indeed intended to be more we-oriented, as I had become somewhat the weird movie guy among my friends circa 1999 to 2005. It was me hanging out with them that truly inspired What Did We Just Watch. Kind of wanted to, for the world, recapture that sort of thing. Not in a nostalgia sort of way, but dang, it was just a whole heap load of fun hanging out with those guys watching weird movies. Eventually, one of those friends would become a show regular and a part-time co-host, John Bjorling. And among the guests who I so dearly wish to thank for their time and contribution are Rob Godinez, Manny Montejano, Travis Trapp, Ken Reed, Edward Cantu, my wife Elby, George Dean, Monica Torres, Michael Cook, PJ Finn, Justin Lore, Liam O'Donnell, Mitch Ansara, Sean Robert, Eric Hall, Adriana Gober, The Mike, Dan Pullen, Stephanie Crawford, Tom Nix, Ron Nelson, Mike Delaney, Andrew Hawkins, Jay Allery, and this final episode guest, Lauren Reed, who was another friend from that 99-2005 period, wherein I was the weirdo movie guy. Well, he was the weirdo music guy, and we got along like aces. And I am so pleased that he's joined me here for this very final episode of What Did We Just Watch? And be sure to stay till after the episode for a very special song that Lauren and I cooked up for you. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the show. You've already been here. This is Old Hat, but what isn't Old Hat is today's guest. He's actually Old Hat for me, but not for you. He's actually one of the original guys that I used to do this concept of the show with, the weird nutsoid strange movies. And it only actually just kind of folded into that way. It wasn't on purpose. I just always had the strange movies and I would bring them over to his house. And his name is Lauren Reed. Hello. It's interesting you mentioned old hat. Yeah. J- just so the audience knows, I couldn't wear a hat to save my life. I have gigantic hair. No, oh, he's got dreads, yeah. sort of. Semi-dreads. Yes. Uh, in fact, so many girls, white girls, would typically say you look like Lenny Kravitz. You're right. It was typically white women, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I was around that part of your social life enough to pick that up. Yeah. But most of my uh, my time with you was actually sitting around watching movies and 
or watching you play video games with Steve. And, it's the good old days. And me being ultra critical of the graphics and not being super impressed and then getting a big argument. Not with you. Every but. gamer circle needs at least one of those. That's fine. <laughs> I, don't, I don't see the big deal about graphics. There goes Big Deal Andrew. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was never my nickname. It should have been. That would have been a good nickname. That actually would have been. A, that would be anybody's good nickname, wouldn't it? Yeah. Big Deal Lauren. Big Deal Andrew. Yeah. Just un- until you start calling yourself that in front of people, then it's done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, okay, everybody, this banter is just to show that we're old friends. Yes. And we've got this old rhythm that's pretty good. Yes. But, Lauren, I'm going to ask you first, uh-huh. before we get into it. Of course. Your experience with Vincenzo Natale started where everybody else's experience with Vincenzo Natale. You're right? referring to uh, Cube. Cube, right? Yes. Did you see any of his follow-ups, not including... Uh, the subsequent, which we talked about uh, recently. Did you see Cypher? It was one of those sort of throw it to the debris that'll end up blowing back in your face at some point kind of situations where I'm pretty sure I fell asleep at some point or it was just too late night. I was destined to mm. fall asleep. But I do remember okay. revisiting it and the same sort of thing happening, which <laughs> okay. probably says something. Maybe. Maybe not. I actually liked Cypher. It's a bit of a spy movie. Did you... Oh, oh um... wait. So, so Cypher was, I thought, the second. Was Cypher the third? Cypher was the second. That's what I'm saying, yes. I, I, I enjoyed Cypher, where it's the guy, he thinks he's going in for this job, but then... Yes. Yeah. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, yeah, I, yeah. I'm sorry for the confusion. Yeah, no, that was that was good. It was interesting. We're skipping the third. We're skipping the third um, one. Okay. That's the one I was referring to. Doesn't do a lot of actual movies. He's now a TV director. Yeah, he, he did, did uh, an episode of uh, Westworld. I think he's he's doing that. Yeah, year. he did he did Westworld. He also did Hannibal. Really interesting. Very artful work in Hannibal. It's like super awesome. Oh. And he did Netflix Stephen King adaptation in the tall grass and that was actually pretty decent it still felt like a TV project does it still feel like his his style of, of cube and nothing when well yes because it's people separated from each other in a field of grass and they have to try to get back to each other and there's more supernatural craziness that happens but right yeah it's a lot of the isolation thing nice but that's that's a similar theme that pops up here and there in his work I think Okay, so that must have been, I, like, I don't know if there's anything in between that, that so that, that had to have been really recently. I'm assuming it's like last year. Uh, yeah, last year. So yeah, then exactly that, right. that's, I don't know if he did anything but in between that and my last. He did he, I know Splice. he did ABCs of Death too. I don't know, I don't remember that. But Splice okay. he did? Do you remember Splice? Splice, yes, uh, which was, I have a same sort of emotional feeling about Splice that I do about Avatar, which is that there are these huge sort of social commentary concepts going on. Like, you know, one is genetic manipulation and one is obviously what does it mean to avatar yourself? Mm -hmm. And neither film did I care enough about for what it seemed like the production studio wanted me to care. Like, for instance, I guess, do I say it's brilliant makeup, what they did to her? I don't know, because it's believed. No, it's it's a combination of makeup and CG effects. Exactly, exactly. So it's like, I can't tell. Like it, it was, it's sort of, it was sort of a good idea for them to present that character in the way that they did. The now I like some of the idea of Splice, but my problem with Splice is that it is like the Fly, which is a bunch of very stupid scientists, very stupid smart people. They, but as that's in, the they setup. Make foolish decisions. They, they do. 
<laughs> that thing is so frustrating. Like I want, I want smart scientists. I don't want stupid scientists. What would so then What would be an example of a, a film that features smart scientists? Smart scientists. There are hardly any in in. Okay, well, Arrival. It's very boring, but that has smart scientists where they're interesting. You're right. What's going on? Maybe the stupidity makes it more exciting. So talking about Vincenzo Natale, but why? What did we just watch? Uh, we we just watched nothing, man. I feel like I watched nothing. Dave Johnson. Yes. You're under arrest. You're a loser, Dave. We're here to tear down your house. What? What the hell's going on? What is it? Welcome to nothing. This is paradise. No cars, no freeways, no people. What was that? This is some kind of joke, right? A place where reality is questionable. Something's here and it's driving us crazy. And if we sit around doing nothing, we're gonna die. And fear is an absolute certainty. It's watching to see how we'll react. We can't stay here. This place is killing us. Andrew! <laughs> Don't you see? It's us. It's you and me. We're dead. We're the ones who are dead. Andrew! We can't be dead. We have cable. We did watch nothing. We did, exactly. Nothing from 2003. 2003, it's been that long, yeah. Yeah, this is one of those that, speaking to John from this show, he says that I did bring this over to you guys. Oh, you did. I realized shortly after having watched it again recently that I did see it with you. Although it was interesting seeing it a second time because I'm not yet until it's critically relevant for us to have this banter at whatever point in this show to mention right now all of the bullet points about what's what. But like I will say, for instance, I remember one thing the first time I saw it, something that resonated with me way back in two, probably 2004, 2005, we saw it, whatever. Probably four, I think. Four, yeah. yeah. I did agree with a lot of critical opinions that just as a duo, in addition to being the only two actors in the film, it just gets really annoying, their banter. They, they become oh, a, it a, annoying can. characters. Candy bar, candy bar. Exactly, yes. Candy bar, 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 yeah. Candy bar is the scene. Yeah. I, I was just going to say, by the way, that I watched it recently and I didn't have quite as intense feelings, but go on. That's that's actually how it is. I actually, and I always usually like break my seal on this. I love this movie. Warts and all. Yeah. You can save it for later or you can say it now. We'll ask matter. at the end. That'll be a nice surprise. Okay. The Drews are two writers. Andrew Miller, he was in Cube as the autistic guy. And Andrew Lowry, who was in My Boyfriend's Back. Right. Lowry is, is Dave. A movie that we... No, Dave isn't Lowry. Oh, no, oh, no, 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 wait. Andrew Miller yeah, yeah. is Andrew, right? Yes, Andrew Miller is Andrew. And, da and Andrew Lowry is Dave. No, Andrew Lowry is Dave's boss. Oh, holy crap. Dave Hewlett is Dave. Or Dave so Hewlett, Dave names. Hewlett, it's, excuse it's me, yes. sitcom I, rules. They have their names. I knew that. I just literally put the two Andrews together in real life because... They're, it's not they're a team exactly they're a writing duo. okay right go on so do you know what they did before like a major piece of work that they wrote before what was it also same director lines no no well then i don't know they wrote a movie called simon says I, i'm instead simon says simon says gotcha was it good no i mean <laughs> it has some cool action to it but it is dennis rodman 
I mean, um, doing kung fu movie. He's some super spy or something. I don't know. I, okay. I haven't seen it in a long time. Um, it wasn't on my radar even back then. You know, I never really got too much into action movies. Yeah, me neither. Even though I've seen so many of them, I just don't typically like them. Okay, on that note, so, what would be, just to set that bar for your audience, what you mean when you say that, what would be oh, the, the best action movie you've ever seen? Oh, the very, very best action movies are the current action movies, like The Raid and uh, John Wick-style movies. The First Raid. Ones, the First Raid. Or Raid Barenthal is also pretty good, but it's too long. Just shooting um, from the hip, I'd have to agree with you. The Raid movie, movie and or the, especially the first one, and uh, also the John Wick films. Yeah, go on. There's a really cool action Korean action movie, which has a Kill Bill slant uh, and a La Femme Nikita slant at the okay. same time called The Villainess. Villainess. Pretty, yeah, pretty solid. But uh, like American action movies, American starring action movies, I typically don't like. I like the European stuff or... Asian stuff. Same. So, but what did you think of the um, Mission Impossible films then? Mm, they're pretty good. I mean, especially after J.J. Abrams showed up. Yeah. His was okay, but style-wise, style I always like how he makes a movie look. Yeah. But then, yeah. I get you. Yeah. So th this movie has a couple of ties. Like I said, Andrew Lowry is tied into with an ep another episode we did with Mitch Ansara mm -hmm. about my boyfriend's back. We did an episode on that on this show. We also covered Buckaroo Banzai, and this movie has a tie-in with Buckaroo Banzai in one scene. Which also has a, an interesting tie-in to our good old days. Yeah. Yeah. So Buckaroo Banzai scene is when Dave goes to work, and yeah. he shows up, and he thinks that he's going to have this great promotion. Right. But he's not. He's getting fired. But over the overhead, John Warfin and John Big Boutet is heard. John Warfin, line two. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that is Buckaroo Banzai stuff. We covered that on this show as oh, well. Oh, good. Okay, cool. Because I was so going to say that why. might be a confusing, those might be confusing uh, sort of anecdotes, If, but you already did it. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So what happens to these, we're skirting around it, so what happens to Andrew and Dave, right? Sure, so yes. every Does anybody say Dave in this movie Nobody for says once? Dave. Nobody says Dave. Nobody says it, but yeah. they constantly say Andrew. Andrew! 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 And I keep yelling what? It's, in, it's interesting that you noticed that because I was looking for some recognition in this character that... Uh, well, again, I don't know if we're there yet. Continue your, your questioning. No, you go. You go. So, it, for instance, skipping to the end... <laughs> I mean, and also, like, skipping to the end of not only just me talking too much, but also skipping to the end of the film. So they're playing musical instruments. Yeah. And, and that's sort of should be, I feel like, what director wants you to take as an iconic scene from the film it means something and so dave cannot learn the drums for for you know whatever it takes Wait, him no don't don't skip okay you see I, I, that's very that's a very important point oh if that's important then what gets them here yeah what's the catalyst that's something that i, I was really hoping to discover along the way of this podcast because I, I i literally have to say that i'm sort of conflicted it's a movie in two acts Right. So the first act is the world is closing in on them. And so the logic of the movie is it's magical realism, right? That's so all he directs, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> kind of. No, not totally magical uh, But realism. you know what I mean. Yeah, I was being unfair when I said that, but, but usually. The two best friends, are they even best friends? No, not really. But right. they live together. Right. One guy is a lout, and he uses the other guy, and the other guy is a shut-in who is afraid of everything. Yes. And they do have their own personal stories that they need to go on, and they actually do have them. But one is still kind of terrible, and the other one actually... You know that, that Batman thing? 
that he says, you're a hero and you live long enough to see yourself become a villain. Yes. That theme is a little bit in this, but with the shut-in character. I get that, but they didn't have the badass or re, uh, sort of fault go-to that Batman did, which was that you get to hit that hard curb first if your parents die, and so you have to start out rugged. Well, I don't know if... Well, he's a shut-in, so I think he doesn't have parents or whatever. I don't know their backstory. I would. Be, it would have been have nice the... to have seen that, I guess, is the one thing I think that was missing from the film in a narrative perspective. I know that how they created it. Okay. Vincenzo Natale took both Andrew Miller and Dave Hewlett up to a cabin in Ojai. So that's they... what it looks like up there, huh? <laughs> no. They, you've been to Ojai, haven't you? I, I don't know. I, it, pro- it probably looked like nothing to me. Upper desert, lower desert, whatever in California. Anyway, probably. Southern California, but it's a high desert. Anyway. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah. So he's in a cabin up there doing some workshopping. So they did the first workshop, and they just improvised this whole concept. So they wrote a six-page treatment for it. Mm-hmm. Once they got that six-page treatment greenlit, they workshopped it some more. And during that workshop process, I think they sent it to the Drews. And then after b- both of the Drews, you know, they worked on the script and they, they hammered out a bunch of points. And then they shot it with a video camera Yeah. and blocked it and did all that stuff, like, without any of the what you might think. Uh, There's, like, a little sitcom set that they used. Okay. And... They just did it really like uh, like a previs for special effects movies, right? With the actors. So it was just it was literally just them. Even more than we get to see, it's just them. Yeah, and so you get this version of the film, and so they did this this movie three times. Mm. Well, you mean from start to finish? And so during the improvising acting, they get their treatment. That's movie one. Movie two is after they get the script, they do that also with some more improv acting, seeing how the scenes might work. Mm. And they shoot it all. And then the third time that they do it is the final time. With a tightened up script, the stuff that didn't work in the second version is cut out and so on. Gotcha. So it's these two dudes. The walls close in on them rather early in the story. They run and retreat into their house. What do you think about their house first? There's some definitely sort of allegory going on there. I mean, even if you if if you were a super breaky downy kind of person like I tend to be too often and thank goodness I tend to leave it to myself and not broadcast it. The house is a half house if you look at it geometrically, it's literally a half house. Yeah. And they are at several points in the movie fighting over, you know, sort of whose house space it is based on what they think they've given. Like you were hard to live with and I had to take care of you, but it's my house and I paid the money part of it and I didn't charge you rent. Yeah, but this, yeah, but that. And so it's right. almost like their banter is uh, the house is what's important what they're and then maybe the mistake over the course of time which we're not there yet but you know the mistake they made was that it was about the house and not them yeah right that's the best i can answer that i guess (laughs) what about the location of the house the whole the location was interesting because i feel like driving to la i was probably just going record shopping at amoeba and then getting dinner at one of the fancier la restaurants with an ex-girlfriend or something but i have this memory of seeing a house like kind of in between two freeways junctions it felt like i don't remember it being a half house so this seems entirely sort of like a whimsical fantastical sort of thing that's happening in the same way that i think it's something like five seven minutes into the film uh where i'm sorry where does it take place what city is it again toronto Toronto. canada right toronto and and when they present the city in panoramic view it's this sort of fantastical almost comic book looking kind of yeah it, it can't exist in that way exactly and that sort of sets a precedent for what the mood of the film is, so, you know, through the rest of it. So I think the house is probably the the penultimate sort of like a, a seed for all of that. It's like you know, you get to see all the angles of the house. It looks kind of run down. It's a half a house. 
you get to see inside and it's a mess. Basically, I think one of my favorite films is when they're looking for something later in the film and they he looks inside of the, the oven and there's a bunch of books in there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, like why? Why is there a bunch of phone and, books? And he closes it nonchalantly like as if, oh yeah, of course I put the books in there. Right, right. That's where the books go. So things are a mess and emotion too. The house is planted, I don't know if this was clear or not, between two freeway, they're elevated freeways. I don't think we said it so clearly but the house is between that now you mentioned like seeing something similar maybe driving in la or to la yes i was going to redlands at one point and we get off the freeway and like right next to the off-ramp is where the house was that we were going and it was kind of insane it wasn't that it wasn't that close like wedged it wasn't in. between two yeah roads yeah uh, but it was really close and i was just like are they serious? Is this even... This is weird zoning. Yeah. But I've never seen it similarly as the film is. The uh, the city the city is far bigger than them, you know, and their house. Yeah. They, they mean nothing. So Miller gets accused of... Because there's a spiteful little girl, um, campfire girl, isn't it? Uh, I don't remember her name, but uh, the Girl Scouts girl. Yeah, Fireside Girl. That's what she's called. Fireside. Okay. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. She's like a Girl Scout. She helps him because he gets locked out, so she climbs in and opens a door and lets him in. Then he... I don't know, mister. You were pretty shaken up. Maybe I should stay and look after you for a little while. I am a Fireside Girl. No. I'm going to make you something to eat. No! And he touches her arm to please, like, no, get out, because she's going to the kitchen. He doesn't want her to. Mm-hmm. And then she freaks out, and then she lies. Mm-hmm. I don't think this is a commentary on anything. I think this is just a means to get trouble coming to his door. Right. So he freaks out some more. Her den mother comes to the door, accuses him, and then later the cops come. At the same time as later the cops coming for him, cops are coming for Dave. Right. Although I don't remember seeing a differentiation between sets of cops. It was just cops were there. Yeah, well, they, they did mention it. What was the mentioning of it? The bullhorn. Dave Johnson, you're under arrest for embezzlement. This is the police. Come out of the house. We know you're in there, Andrew. Gotcha. Dave. The bullhorn. Yeah. I guess I just assumed that that was because he closed the door and said, yeah. hold on, I got to get my horse, <laughs> which, I, which I thought was hilarious, actually. I mean, there's a lot of funny stuff. There's a lot of funny stuff that it would seem an easy risk to not catch if you weren't paying attention. Yeah. So they both are freaking out because the cops are coming for Dave for embezzlement. Um, there's some brief story about some lady taking advantage of him. Yeah. The major theme in this is friendship but it's a it's a very interesting and strange bit of i will i was gonna say i will say that is it is proclaimed to be a film about friendship but we'll get into that yeah yeah because i i don't really have i mean kind of i have had a friend that was very problematic i've had several so it could be accurate okay gotcha in some in some other someone's life someone else's life spectrum Yeah. yeah 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 i mean it's all it's all whimsical and and fanciful but it's also not so whimsical to a degree that i understand that it's whimsy to where i understand it and like it so much inherently like something like punch drunk love that i'm still left a little bit confused okay no the confusion is see okay what i really like and i've been saying this about movies a lot lately i like a movie that gives you something to try to figure out that has something to offer you that isn't just it's a trade-off stuff yeah this movie does have its faults and some of it seems like i've seen it a few times now it asks a lot of the audience that it doesn't seem yes it does ask a lot of the audience but it doesn't seem like what's the point 
anymore. Like the first time, I'm with you. What's the point? Right. Second time and subsequent viewings, it's much less. What's the point? And it's a lot more subtleties come through. I agree. It have been, it, or it may have been where I was at the time in my life that, like I said, the first viewing, where maybe I actually just appreciate it a little bit more now, having seen it recently. This happens a lot. Yes. This happens a lot. There's a movie, The Box. Did you ever see The Box? I'm not sure what's in the box. <laughs> it's a button. You press the button and it kills somebody. But ooh, sounds like uh... after you press the button, and it's a Twilight Zone episode too. Oh, a short story. Was it based on the Twilight Zone the... episode? It was based on a short story by Richard Matheson. Gotcha. Okay. And then it, that was published in a Playboy uh, magazine. And oh. then I'll have to hunt that then... one down for the articles. <laughs> for for the story, short story. Yeah. yeah, for that one by Richard Matheson. Nice. And then. Um, it was turned into a Twilight Zone episode, then it was remade in 1985 as a Twilight Zone episode, and then it was remade and expanded into a also different story than oh, that okay. concept of press the button, you get your wish, but you also kill somebody you don't know. Sounds like Lullaby, Jack Polonek. Uh, I don't... I, I don't think I've read that. But anyway, anyway yeah. um, I hated that movie the first time I saw it. I hated it. Mm -hmm. I hated so many things about it. Mm -hmm. And then I got an itch to watch it again. And I loved it. And the love has not stopped. Because I've seen it, I do believe, two or three times. Uh, no, about two times after that love watch. And I still love it. Nice. So you're finding it, the, the dynamic and the duality of, of, of perspective based on, I wouldn't say necessarily age, are. but just, yeah, where, no, where you are where versus you where are. you were. Yeah. What you're willing to accept. I think that means uh, um, evolving. That's cool. I mean, in my mind, at least. The other actor, major actor, is Cameron Diaz, and her accent is the thing that I really didn't like the first time. I'm really critical on accents. That's interesting you say that because a big-name person like that, I was thinking about how... Uh, Lucy Liu was in that Cube film. Oh, and, uh, no, she was not Cube, Cube, Cypher. Cypher, yeah, and, but either way, I, I was just thinking that her presence was sort of just lackluster there. I want to watch it again. I do, too. I like it. Yeah, I like no, it I like bunch, it, too, but, but I just remember, yeah, I don't know if, yeah. I but, haven't seen it since I watched it that time, you know? Okay. And I have it, but I haven't seen it since I watched Mind you, I said not, not necessarily her performance, just like why Lucy Liu. It kind of threw me out of the loop of... Oh, right. Of, Could be anybody. Right, exactly. Mm, but isn't that what we want of any actors? <laughs> Could be anybody? Could be anybody. I think that maybe that's really what we want. But anyway, uh, well, Andrew and Dave. Yeah. This is like a Freaky Friday situation, right? Where both of the characters have this moment where they wish something at the same time and then it happens. But they don't switch places. It's, I mean, it's almost more like an eerie Indiana situation, but yeah. Oh yeah, I suppose so. But but the, the context kids. you're spot on, yeah. But where the two kids are involved in a thing that only they're aware of. Exactly. Yeah, eerie Indiana. Yeah. So these guys, they open the door because there's no more cacophony outside. And it's there's Pandora's no box. And it's not just Pandora's box, it's just blank. This movie could have been called blank. Well, I was just going to say Pandora's box, it turns out, is really boring. The movie could have been called boring, and it might have gotten more sales. I don't know. What? I, I, I don't, I'm not saying I think it was boring. I'm saying that when anybody, audience, is presented with the thought of maybe in their own personal lives, if they ended up in a space like that, they would be more, oh, they would uh, be more freaked out so about living in that uh, universe than living in one with let's people. Be more, let's be clear. Yeah. With with our, our audience here. Yes, yes. All right. They open the door, and they have a little bit of a front lawn. They are in their house. Beyond the front lawn and beyond the perimeter of their house, 
is blank white. Correct. AKA nothing. And also, just to be clear with the audience, that is exactly, though, how you described. They have a little bit of a front lawn, whatever. That's how it looks mm-hmm. before the house is in that space. <laughs> right, but the rest of the world But the rest of the is world is gravel, white when they end up. Yes. Uh, overpass, and weird Toronto. Correct. And, and, and puddles of gook that are just so disgusting. And Dave steps in them, like, twice, and it's just, like, the worst. The, the puddles of gook happen in the real world, though, right? Yes, they do. Right. There's no real messiness in this. In the blank space. Yeah. I'm just, I'm realizing Nothing. now how stupid it sounds to try to talk about this film. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's cool. It's cool. I it, don't is, like... it is actually kind of cool. Okay. Look, John has had me talk about Repo, the genetic opera. Uh-huh. So, I mean. that's that's a hard, That would be a hard that. one. Yeah. <laughs> It was very difficult. Yeah. Like, do you, do you go, I liked this opera, weird, random, insert opera segment, and not... No, <laughs> I, I have just no go idea. back and listen yeah. to Just go back and listen to it. You'll hear it. It's kind of comical. Okay, I will. And I guess just to rewind a little bit on your, your opening up the, the premise and everything. So we do start out with that, The I said Girl Scout, you said... The police. Oh, they're, they're also trying to knock down the house, too. That's the other and, thing. And they're also... Tr- good, yeah, see, oh, good, you remember that. So one thing, audience, is that, yeah... Uh, person with manic anxiety disorder he's afraid to leave his house he goes to take out his trash after his roommate leaves him because it was typically his roommate's uh, job to take out the trash since he could not himself leave the house without feeling anxiety his friend decides he's gonna go live with his girlfriend so now he has to take out the trash he goes to try to take out the trash and his door closes behind him leaving him in a complete and utter mess at which point a say again andrew not girl scout but fireside girl fireside girl and so she she shows up and she's really gung-ho about her presence and I, I still can't quite understand why but I, I think I mean obviously for the sake of moving she's a suck up it's one of those sort of is that what they're trying to think about her personality the little girl it's it's just a footnote and like I said she's there to cause trouble as far as mo- the, the, the she was a trouble of her in okay. the story so th- so th- if that's the case yeah I buy that that makes more sense now I, I hadn't quite processed that fully but what she does is she crawls in through a little crawl space in his house and then ends up at his front door and opens it for him but then tries to outstay her welcome and says stuff like i'm gonna cook for you you don't seem okay like this is nonsense to me like why is she doing that well so so that's what i'm saying is from like a director's perspective i'm I'm kind of not even sure or writer's perspective i'm not even quite sure why so because it is a farce right no i get that i just mean she went so far as to insinuate for the sake of her den mother picking her up uh she went so far as to falsify allegations of this guy that she helped get back into his house well hold make on. it look like i think maybe this is probably just conjecture from the den mother being all mad you touched her. well but there was a bruise on the arm and so here's what I'm there worried. was a bruise because he grabbed her and she's like but was that because he grabbed her or did she falsify that because i saw the scene twice i made sure i watched it twice and the way in which okay. he grabbed her it didn't look like a bruise thing. Hmm. You know what I mean? It looked like him going, please listen to me. Now, yeah, yeah. here's the confusing part with him having all these anxiety issues and all this whatever, whatever. Maybe he did bruise her. Yeah, like so. And he didn't know it or something. Bit. Right. right. Yeah, that's entirely possible. So uh, everything that we said previously happens and then they just realize that they're in nothing. Right. And then they try to do uh, the scientific method of figuring it out. Right, which is also basically the premise for Cube. Yeah, <laughs> it really is, a little bit. Yeah. So there's this really cool shot of them 
dressed up in tinfoil protective gear and it's Samurai silly sword. looking. But the shot starts with the items up close to the camera and they're walking off into the distance. Those items are all, all jumbo items. Yes. Like I mean, stuff I, I have can in my tell, closet. But it's like a giant crayon. Pre- yeah, pretty foreground. much. That's a good way of exp- yeah. It's a giant mitt in a ball or something. And they progressively get smaller as yeah. you go along. But it's all supposed to be a perspective thing. But remember uh, Top Secret when dude goes for the phone and the phone is in the foreground and he just picks up this enormous phone? Yeah. It's that gag, but without being a gag, it's just there to make the illusion. I love it. I like that part about it too, now that you put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's really creative and they did a lot of work with the white. It's impossible to get rid of the white. Yeah. Uh, the shadows in white and like that. Which I might so add much. might be, I'm wondering if for, for any other audience goers, I mean, even including the audience for this, but I'm just saying audience in general, if it was also maddening for them to watch. Because it's so blank? Because it's just so, yeah, like, uh, I mean, you know, recent stuff. Oh, uh, like, I can't imagine watching this in the in a theater because it would be so Oh, bright. no, no, I, I just mean in general, like, cinematically for them to sit in front of and watch if maybe, like, you know, you if you go on, uh, wherever you go, you if you read uh, user reviews or comments, you're going to see something about it just being unbearable, like from someone. And I'm wondering if part of it is the same thing that only recent research has shown, which is like, you know, when you and I grew up going to school, it was totally fine. We should just stare at white paper all day and write on it. But turns out that's not necessarily that causes emotional feelings of discomfort and mm. anxiety. And, and then there's some tie-ins to that and one of the characters in it all being about anxiety also later, which I won't ruin right now. So I'm just wondering if that was intentional. Because the color could have been of nothing, could have been any color, you know. Could have been any color. Yeah. I wonder, I, I listened to the, to the commentary too, and they didn't really talk about like it being oppressive, but I'm going to put it there. I like snow i like a lot of snow i like, like snow especially like recently blanket too. on everything yeah it dampens everything and it makes everything quiet it makes everything soft and interesting which is exactly um, why i'm wondering me. what if it was all black well, that would have been almost but still that would have been less imposing on the audience they wouldn't have had this brightness to constantly right yeah so in a way maybe how artificial it looks yeah okay yeah, I get that. They did this cool CG stuff with, and it's very slight, but the fuzziness under their feet yeah. was to get rid of the shadows. They pioneered an actual way to do that. That's pretty cool. Oh, good. Um, because I was wondering how they did the thing with the without giving away too much, showing body parts, which actually right. looked really cool. Do you recall a movie called Rosencrantz and Guildenstern Are Dead? I do, but I did not see it. Well, it's based on a play by Tom Stoppard. It's also a movie with Gary Oldman and Tim Roth. I remember those, Oldman being a part of it, yeah. Yeah, those dudes are Rosencrantz and Guildenstern from Hamlet. They're two characters, side characters, that show up in one scene and then are killed in another scene. Okay. And so the the movie and the play have them, like, while the rest of the story is happening, here's what's happening with them. Right. They're just killing time, and it's on the set of Hamlet. Right. So they're in the same areas and all that stuff. Very interesting dialogue. It's actually a lot more friendly because this is sort of like a War of the Roses kind of thing where they're supposedly friends, but they're frenemies, it seems. Sure. And Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead is a lot more friendly than this. But it reminds me, it's called The Theater of the Absurd. There's another thing called Waiting for Godot. Have you heard of that? Of course. Okay, this is reminiscent of Waiting for Godot, which is also Theater of the Absurd, where by the end of it, Kid says, hey, uh, Godot's not coming. 
<laughs> and the two guys were just like, what? Ah, oh, we've been waiting for him the whole time. The end. So that seems to be an inspiration point for, at least on the commentary, when I, I mentioned this to LB first, like in the middle of watching it this last time, it has a vibe of Waiting for Godot. And during the commentary, twice they mentioned Waiting for Godot. You know what's interesting about you mentioning Waiting for Godot, now that I think about it, they have a dialogue with three other characters while they're waiting for Godot. And in this, mm-hmm. in this film, it's the ex-girlfriend, it's the boss, and it's... The, the guy that know, shows up. Authorities. Exactly. Yeah. So that's I, that. That I'm guessing I'm banking on that not having been intentional. But either way, that means you did yeah. a good job describing a relation. <laughs> yeah. So, but also their characters change, and they change when when they realize that they can edit their surroundings via what they hate and how they actually hated away the rest of the world. Yeah. And then they realize that they can hate things away within themselves which is where this whole thing gets kind of existentially or philosophically interesting and that's ironically also where you get to nitpick the most as a viewer okay what are you nitpicking tell me well for instance i do better with these sorts of questions when i'm allowed a question to kick it all off how do you feel like this film compares with groundhog day i don't like groundhog day why is that (sighs) i don't like bill murray very much He's a b-hole. Wasn't he perfect for the role then? I I mean, I guess, but like he was good for Scrooge. But I'm over Scrooge as well. Um, He's not. (laughs) But but I I can tell you, I think I've only seen it like once or twice. Groundhog Day. I I know more about the behind the scenes of it than I do remember. Well, basically, so there's this line where they're playing video games, and he goes, or maybe we're on pause. What? Like a video game. You hit the pause button and everything just stays in that one place. And to the characters, that one moment becomes their whole world because it's the only thing that exists to them. Do you think the characters ever know they're on pause? They don't know anything. They do what they're programmed to do. Yeah, but if they were real, do you think they'd want to be on pause like that forever? I'm trying to play a game here. Basically, without using the word, him implying what if this is a limbo of sorts. Mm -hmm. So there's a bit of release after the climax in in Groundhog Day being he's fully accepted what he's going through, and it's either going to work or not. Him practicing reinventing himself while he's on pause so that when it hits play... Yeah, and supposedly it's been a thousand years. Something like that, right. And so, but, but in this film, when they're on pause, it's almost, in my mind, like sort of an awkward reverse ground hog day because they keep breaking themselves down into less and less instead of more and more like bill murray oh absolutely and you're speaking literally now first it starts with andrew getting rid of the things that he hates about himself right fear exactly his fear impulse so this is where his character actually becomes different exactly he becomes a different person and andrew as annoying as he is when i mentioned candy bar yeah candy bar candy bar candy bar <sighs> no, but that's okay, a, that's only one that's only one scene that's annoying in that same realm. Like even yeah, but it is the the most that was the, that was the most horribly yeah. Like I get it, <laughs> annoying part where he just sees the house and it's too far away to actually see what it is. So he says it's a candy bar, and you're like, "Are you stupid? It's obviously your house." Well, and that's why I'm taking stabs at the the writing and direction is because they could have conveyed that without having been annoying to the audience. For instance, five seconds later, even though Dave is trying to convince Andrew, no, it's not a candy bar. That's a residence of some sort. Andrew keeps going on and on, and right after that, Dave makes a really quick, funny quip because they're finally like, "Let's go," and Dave is like. Yeah. There's someone there. Maybe they have food. And so it's like clearly they have good enough of a concept of writing what they're writing to have condensed that and not made it annoying to the audience, which which does happen, I want to say, four or five times in the film. And since 
like I said, I've seen this film spread out twice now over such a long amount of time, and also because I <laughs> right. consider myself somewhat of a, a film buff, even if I don't do all the research all the time. I can totally forgive that, but I'm thinking in terms of other audience members. I can see where, yeah, there's sort yeah. of, anno- yeah. So the another annoying point is that he refers to the people in the house as that's not his house when it obviously is. Once they get closer and closer, maybe other people are in there. Yeah. And they have this leap of logic. Now, I understand why they have this leap of logic. These guys are buffoons. Yeah. They were buffoons in the first place in Toronto. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's One actually is less sort of, of a buffoon than the other. It's off-putting how much so. Dave is a buffoon. Right. Andrew is less of a buffoon, but he has the things that are holding him back, which makes him a fool. He's more just legit stuck. Yes. Yeah. So I do like this part where Dave decides to go sneak up and <laughs> it takes forever for him to get there because he's on his belly. I figured that was your sort favorite of... part where he's crawling on his tippy fingers. This leads up to my favorite scene or my favorite midpoint. Scene. Yeah. But yeah, that it was a good joke, I think, that they kept on going with it and as long as they went with it and they made us as sleepy and annoyed with it. It's sort of like david lynch uh doing the forced but with a joke as opposed to just forced meditation well i mean if you're talking about all-inclusive that whole segment and you're including what happens in the kitchen to both of them yes i think that's honestly worth mentioning because that is the first point in the film where there's a change of pace and they grab your attention again yeah yeah but the forced meditation i'm talking about episode eight season three where the guy's just sweeping up at the roadhouse gotcha yeah it's three minutes plus of a guy sweeping and you're just waiting for the scene to change and it doesn't change (laughs) for so long and i was like aha right forced meditation he's a transcendental meditation guy and this is all this is because we all started chilling after like a minute of complaining right i mean (laughs) i guess you summed summed up everything i was saying too because forced meditation is a thing but then your average to do audience member is going to get angry at someone trying to force meditation on them. So halfway through him crawling, I'm like, come on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it could have been cut halfway through. Yeah, but by the end of that scene, I'm also laughing again. I get at it. How ridiculous. And that's time one versus two for me. Yeah. So then they get to the house and, and dude yells, Andrew, go around the back. So I constantly want to respond. Right. <laughs> and I know it's just a movie. I'm not stupid. Yeah. I mean, in this case. Don't worry about but- it. It's nothing. <laughs> so Andrew runs in, meets him in there, and then he looks over across the counter in the background, and there's a trail of blood, and then there's Dave Hold killing saw- Andrew. Sawing off his head with a saw. Yeah, it's a switcheroo because it happens two times. It happens to both of them in their respective dreams, uh, implied at the same time, while they both fell asleep at the same time, even though Dave told Andrew not to fall asleep. So after right. all this crawling on his tippy fingers and what he we... Falls just, he falls asleep before he falls asleep behind the house, house himself. So I thought that was clever. <laughs> Which is also a funny joke. It's a funny yeah. joke if you can get through the monotony of it not being funny for a minute. So then uh, it's the same thing. Each of them decapitates each other's dream version. Why not? Which, when they did test screenings for this, a lot of the test audiences were like, no, get rid of this. And they were like, no, we're not going to get rid of this. This is the culmination of their anxieties. Right. I have to imagine it was the same. This is a foreshadowing. You know, I didn't think about that when I first saw it. It's yeah. A, yeah. It's a really important scene because this is what's happening in their subconscious 
unconscious. Right. And it's coming up. It's a cheap scene on the surface because it's a stupid dream sequence and you could do anything you want in dream sequences. But this is also a movie that does crazy things in its own logic. Right. So it almost seems like why have it except it's there to show the psychology of the guys. Well, the similarly to him dropping F-bombs twice in the film, which are totally out of context of the rest of the film. There's two F-bombs that he drops and I found them refreshing, to be honest, because they were so out of context. <laughs> You know? Yeah. So, so reverse Groundhog Day. Well, yeah, you got the video game part that you're talking about. The reverse Groundhog Day. Yeah. Well, they end up editing and, and hating each other's stuff away. Right. And I don't think I've ever had a friendship where I, I hated my friend. I did have friendships where I didn't want to be around that friend after I learned that their true nature was not that great yeah but i'm not a vengeance person but so i i don't relate a lot to vengeful thinking i guess neither have i andrew i've had i've had moments with friends but like mm -hmm. what do you think the implications are here because i feel like with one of them it must be maybe perhaps jealousy that he can leave the house at whim and then with the other one it might which he later explains also you know a feeling of sort of being used without giving anything too much away yet andrew is definitely being used by the selfish david right and so what would it be on the flip coin for him? He feels like his friend is just annoying uh, for Dave. What is the what is his thing? Well, the criticism of Andrew is that he's just a weak dude. And Dave sees himself as an alpha, but he's actually a weak. So he's right. not just seeing himself as an alpha. He's also projecting his own insecurities onto somebody who is already weak. So that's Andrew. So yeah. when Andrew actually decides to actually too little too late, but do something about it, his weaknesses in his life and actually change hopefully for the better he ends up becoming like i said about the batman thing he ends up becoming a bit of a villain at a point right but, but he hits a point of growth at first where he's just i'm not gonna take this from you anymore and he's right he shouldn't take it from him anymore mm. he should stand up but then dave doesn't grow at all and dave just tits for tat he's not getting what andrew gets because like you you brought up the band thing where he's playing the drums but he absolutely sucks yeah it sucks, but now I don't care. I'm no good. I'll never be any good. I just hated away the fact that I give a shit. That's missing the point. Okay. Because Andrew hated away his his hangups, his actual real consequential hangups. Right, uh, which is why he mentions. Are you hating away a specific memory? Because not gonna work. But I also kind of question the idea that maybe it was. What, how you phrase it was Dave is just sort of untalented and that's sort of you know something he's not confronting but the reason it worked with Andrew is because he wished away actual situational memories. anxieties yeah. like yeah things that are, that are concrete like in stone Trauma. affecting him right and so it, it makes me think about it, that in terms of so when Dave is playing the drums it doesn't matter how much he wishes away he never really wanted to be good at the drums he just wanted to be someone who was seen as a certain image where he wanted to be a rock star without being Without having talented. to deal with the consequences that, yeah, or the, the, yeah. the rock bottoms first. Exactly. So, so yeah. You, you should be able to do a thing and be pretty decent at it before you can get a claim for it. Well, and yeah, he I, can't I, do anything. I, right. I, I think that the less, well, I, I mean, on a personal level, less talk and more function, more action is appropriate before you start communicating with other people about this thing. Otherwise, you run the risk of coming off a certain way instead of embodying what you're trying to do. And, it's, of course, when you're faced with a situation where it's only you and your best friend who pretty much knows everything about you, you're not going to get away with trying to say you're someone you're not. Yeah. Yeah. So I just wished away that I cared. 
that I was bad at the drugs. And he didn't realize that his friend just heard him say that he wished it away. So maybe it doesn't matter. Yeah, it, it doesn't It doesn't work. Right. It shows. Like, they end up battling and like I said, the War of the Roses thing where... It is very War of the Roses. Like, so, so War of the Roses is two people getting a divorce. But it's the worst, most bitter, brutal divorce. It's a play on War of the Roses. And the best uh, scene in that Shakespeare film. Shakespeare play. And what? And the best scene in the film when they're throwing stuff at each other. Yeah, when they're destroying their house. Yeah. When they're damaging the property that they're going to split up and nobody's like, it's bad. It's really bad. So this major end sequence is them deleting everything out of spite. And this is where you would hope that one of them would have the high ground or take the high road, I should say. Right. And they don't. Neither of them do. Yeah. That's the way the exposition works is like, in a way, there's something presented as charming about it finishing neither of them taking the higher ground as if their friendship for each other was more important than any of the reason why they ended up in this turmoil to begin with which i found i found fascinating i will say for now that's all i got okay so to make it really explicit they delete each other's body parts yeah limbs torso all up to the head because neither of them can go that far and (laughs) hate hate the other person away from the head i guess from yeah, from the head up. I hate your jaw. I like that I can hate everything. Really yeah. fascinating. That's interesting. I hate your nose. You know what? I think your... we just hit on another note that I had like considered. That's actually kind of cool. But this is how the movie just gets like, oh, it's going there, and they're still okay. There's right. no guts or viscera, but it is like um, when you look, take a cat scan or those those videos of slicing um, a cadaver into little bits of pieces, and you can see through. Yeah. In an animation sort of way i think that might sound really disturbing to the audience i don't know how uh so there's a scene where after they wish away let's say one of them wishes away half of the other one's body he's left in this nothing environment where you can it's transparent he's on a surface that's transparent because it's nothing although you, i guess yeah. now that i think about it even though there's nothing there's a transparent surface as well but, and it feels like tofu and it feels like tofu according to them so you get to see from the undershot of this half capitated person you get to see their guts through almost like looking through glass from below yes but it is completely flush and it's not hanging out or dangly it, yes it's so, like it's yeah it's flat but it looks it so almost it's doesn't look really comical. cool looking it looks real yeah yeah it looks really good and they do this to the arms legs heads the neck of yeah. course the neck is done that way and then they're just that everything looks like a certain cut of steak like certain cut of ribeye or something <laughs> Maybe that's, you know, you're talking about uh, sampling pictures and digitizing them. Maybe, maybe they did actually do that with meat. It's possible. For this purpose. That's possible. It's really good special effects in this sequence. It is. Like, really good. Even the hand Like, all the stuff in the house, all that stuff, yeah. is just a joke because they don't show it. It's that whole, like, oh, yeah, well, your room's gone. Well, we don't see that the room's gone. They it's edited well. One, they do this one major part. All we hear is the noises going on right. of things disappearing. And also, I like how they disappear because they disappear almost like the, it's different layers of paper. Just burned really quickly. I, not burned, but, like, being... De- animated deleted well i meant Um, i meant burned really quickly in a way that you can't actually see the burning in the same way that like they're you're you're right about what you're saying i agree which is to say even not having to show it because it's a lower budget flick they use sound effects to that effect really well too right because they showed the clock first when he just wishes time away and the clock each element of the clock that gets deleted it deletes down to a nothing point so if you play it backwards it would grow into a clock from this one point. They were detailed about um, making 
each part in, uh, disappear individually. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. But it has this sort of like a paper craft layer. I see what you mean now exactly. It. Yes. I didn't know how to say it. I really like the design work. See, Vincenzo Natale is an illustrator. Yeah. And so uh, I think he has this. This is why I like a lot of his stuff because he has this very illustration design oriented ideas. And I really like his work except for, honestly, Splice? Split? Splint? You, you, splint? I don't know what it's called. Not Splice? Splice. It's Splice. <laughs> <laughs> right. You were you were commenting on my use of the makeup, which is basically you just split down the middle. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, you were accidentally so, commenting on it. Yeah. <laughs> right. So did you watch to the very end, like I said, stay until after the credits are over? Go ahead and mention what you mean first by that. So they show them after the credits roll, after they have this big old headbutt fight where it's just these severed heads flying around the screen like uh, Pong and beating each other in the face with each other's faces. By the way, I wish... I wish they were actually lots more swollen-eyed, broken-nosed. I wish the face, their faces were much more damaged than they were. It would have really sent it over. I me. think that was sort of a testament to the fantastical element of direction, wherein they're not wishing away body parts from, from each other because they hate each other, insofar as to affect their actual metabolism and function of them being alive or their actual health. They're just wishing them away right. for fun, and they can still exist, which is something I would But they I would can't like, wish yeah. anything into existence. They can't. Right. Well, no, They've well, tried. Maybe. Well, I mean, at that point, so 10 years later, it shows that their heads are still there. I'd like to say, pre- preface it with Jesus hair. And they, yeah, they both have <laughs> very Judeo-Christian hair. Oh, way to be politically correct, yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to sound smart. That's all. I, I like that. You did sound smarter. Thank you. <laughs> and they hear noises. They hear a door open. What the hell was that? I don't know. Yeah. And we have nothing to go on except for them opening th- their eyes and going like, huh? Do you have a, what? Th- do you have a theory about? No, I don't. I do. Uh, Vincenzo, Vich- hold on. Vincenzo was saying he would like to revisit the story just to know. tell you what the elephant is about. How would he revisit but he it? Has, I don't know how. But He, he says, specifically said the elephant? He, yeah. Just to clarify the elephant, but I'm not going to do it right now. Okay. That's okay. what he said. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not going to do it right what? now. Like, it could yeah, be. like, he knows why the elephant's there, but he's not going to say. <laughs> I think I do. So why? What's the elephant? What's... Well, if, if taking everything in the... It's like, one thing about, I think, his style of direction is that even though it seems sort of all over the place, and it definitely always seems low budget and working with little to make things grandiose, like, I think a lot of stuff should be taken at face value as far as how it's an allegory or an analogy for anything. So all of these voices and all of these random things are snippets of, I would imagine it's implied sort of that they do still exist in the real world, but they are still sort of just kind of defunct people that don't really know how to function very well, but at least instead of not knowing how to function very well, like when they split up and also not functioning well in the real world, at least they still have each other. But it's implied that they still don't maybe function really well in the real world and they're permanently living in this sort of dream state where what they do to cope is play video games and never grew up kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And so you're hearing snippets of things happening throughout their life while they're asleep in their own world 
which is how their personalities are in real life. The last noise you hear is the elephant in the room about that whole concept where they finally wake up. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're getting so meta. Well, I just can't think of anything else it would mean. Oh, no, that's that's fine. Yeah. I don't mind. In fact, I, I delight in your meta. Excellent. So there's a thing I want to ask if you noticed. Sure. First half of the movie, second half of the movie. Okay. Did you notice the camera work shifting, the difference? Yeah, but... Real world is handheld. I was going to say it was shifty in the beginning was the word I was going to use. It moves around. I was actually a little bit annoyed because I don't like indie movies that do a lot of close-ups and the wobbly close-ups. Yeah. And when they're in their house right before everything changes, the camera work is like NYPD Blue where it's just wobbling right. around on David's face and wobbling around on It's Andrew's not quite face. that wobbly, but yes. Yeah, exactly. But that's just a style. And they, they decidedly did it that way. And once I listened to the commentary, I gave it to them because I don't like that camera work, especially I when it comes to indie movies. I'm wondering if maybe any of that has to do with, you know, however many shots between the first, second, third take it took for the beginning. They had room to play around with that. I read one critic's review online that something about it being interesting, especially since there are only two characters in the film. And I dispute that because there are multiple characters, but for by and large, like 98% of the film is only two people, but there are other characters in the film. Yeah. You know, and so, yeah. but the thing is, like, the ruggedness that was maybe trying to be captured in the beginning or whatever. It, do- it was just the the grittiness of the real it, it world. Did, it didn't, right, the grittiness is a better word. It didn't necessarily need to be filmed like that, but I'm wondering if also that happened because of the way that, however, uh, takes were filmed, and also because the second half is just one set, so they have creative freedom. Well, th- yeah, the second half they shot with steady cam dollies uh, all sorts of stuff like that a really so creative out, editing smooth freedom. shots so yeah. it is decidedly done two different filmmaking styles it's almost right. two different movies actually right. my favorite scene visually is when they're playing video games and rejoicing and having fun the camera's swirling around it's the michael bay shot yeah it's really cool the camera's low pointing up at them and it's in a semicircle. And it just keeps going around. Back I remember that. It's a really cool sequence. It was interesting. Um, I was annoyed at their reactions as gamers to gaming and figuring <laughs> out which fighting game oh, we were playing. So That game was created by two 17-year-old guys just for this movie. Really? Yeah. It looked like parts of Tekken, and I, I, yeah. don't, I don't remember. Yeah, well, it had Hollywood Hogan-type character. Oh, okay. There. So there, no wonder some stuff looked off. Yeah. So, yeah, they built this game probably from some sort of wire work internet birth thing. I don't know. Gotcha. Yeah, so it looks That's me nitpicking some stuff I didn't need to anyway, because the point of them playing games and having that relationship when they were doing it was not for someone to evaluate why are they pushing 80 buttons at once and they're only kicking. It was. (laughs) No, that's how I play, remember? But also, Andrew, I know that's how you play, but also it was to (laughs) convey the emotion that they had while they were playing. Yeah, yeah. But yes, that's. That's how I play, so don't, you played don't criticize. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I just stared at the controller and it didn't do anything. No, sometimes I button match like crazy. I button match like crazy. Yeah, sometimes it works. And I would always get everybody really frustrated when I won because they're like, how? And I would win like every uh, every third time or so. It wasn't like always. I swear it that's was... like three of my ex-girlfriends always picked Chun-Li in Street Fighter. And they did the same, had the same thing. And it, she just kicked me to death every time, no matter how advanced I was yeah. at the time. Yeah, well, finally... As the final question, what do you think this actually says about friendship? Okay, so I'm going to try to wrap up everything that I felt into a very short, concise thing. Do that it! Also, also includes your question. What do I think it says about yeah. friendship? So, first of all, just to be funny, I want to say, maybe sometimes friends, you know the, the phrasing, the saying, you don't know what you're in from your perspective. You know, outsiders might see it, but you don't know. Kind of okay. what, You get it, sure. right? 
<laughs> is there at all an implication when the last shot, not counting the post-credit shot, just the last shot of the actual film, the last shot is the turtle walking up and then looking up into the air after they disappear as just heads. I'm wondering if the whole, the fault of the whole thing was the turtle all along, wishing that they would just get over it and be friends. <laughs> In the commentary, they were calling that turtle the bastard. <laughs> So, I mean, the turtle was clearly verbally abused. <laughs> they were like, that turtle's a jerk. They're, they're just goofing, but, <clears throat> but that's jerk. pretty funny that you bring that up. Yeah. You know, already compared it to Groundhog Day, which was a fundamental theme that I had. We talked about that. But I'm um, wondering if you think, do you think there was actually a resolution in the end when, just for audience summary's sake, the, they end up just being two heads at the end and they bounce off. And my thoughts on that are all over the place. I'm not going to get into all of them because when they get into a head battle and their heads start bouncing around and they collide with mm-hmm. each other. So far in the film, we're only told that they can wish away things. They can't wish for things to actually happen. So does that mean in order to make their heads bounce, they wished that they didn't have the ability to make their heads bounce, even though they're just heads? Which means, do they all of a sudden have superpowers finally? It, it could go for <laughs> on forever. We don't know. Let's not get into that. <laughs> but do you think that because the final scene is them sort of having this whimsical fun time about almost like being in Chuck E. Cheese, even though they're just heads, like, oh, what was the last line? It was like, you know, this really isn't so bad. I always felt sort of let down by my body. Huh. Yeah. Believe it or not, so did I. And they're friends again. Yeah. And they're just heads. Do you feel like that, Andrew, as a as an ending of a film, do you feel like there was, I don't want to say proper resolution, especially for a film that's probably at least partly meant to be interpretive, but do you feel like there was resolution in your mind? Because if it's about friendship or whatever it's supposed to be about, I guess I'm asking you, do you feel like that conflict between them two being friends was resolved or that maybe even was there a resolution to the film as a whole? I don't know. Well, I still think Dave's a jerk. Um, But in the point where Andrew became a villain, uh, he met Dave on Dave's playing ground, playing field. However you say, I don't know sports. Playing grounds. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> Playing that's, more ground. apt. that's more apt for the film we're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> so he met him where he was, played at his own level. I mean, I guess they're as good of friends as you can you can hope for. And they realize that they are the only people that they have. So they're kind of stuck with each other. So there's yeah. a sort of pragmatism to it. But also, like, there's history there, too. And there were good times. Yeah. So why bother with the whole hating each other away thing anymore? So I get that. There is a bit of a resolution, but it's a lot of resigning. Yeah. It's not a jubilant thing. It's like a uh, shrug, like, oh, like, we're kind of stupid. Look what we did. We don't have arms. We don't have legs. Right. You know? Well, and see, that's why at some point my brain sort of hurt. And then that's also why I realized I was probably thinking too deeply about what the point was. Like... For instance, why didn't they just hate the fact that they weren't back in the real world under circumstances that they enjoyed? And the answer yes. is that's maybe sort of impossible for what the point of the film was trying to get it's at. It's also, the, yeah. they're not that clever. Well, for, but, but, but I think also to that note is what I'm saying is at the end, Andrew starts getting more clever. He starts saying things like, yeah, I know you just erased that memory that you hate me for who I am right now, but I don't want to erase mine. I want to remember because it's important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so... In that way, sort of like how, how the ending goes, Andrew ends up winning at the video games in the end, and it seems mm-hmm. like it seems like Dave is pretty helpless to it. Like he's just not gonna win, and that's the lesson that he needed to learn because Andrew ends up following up with you know also. So there's only resolution with Andrew. There's none with Dave. I sort of feel that way until I mean I guess maybe that's what we need to learn about his character. He's he is that vapid enough character. He's still valuable to humankind insofar as needing a psychiatrist or needing to be 
having a friend or psychoanalyze, but he's the kind of character that doesn't necessarily even, he did, he never needed that. Like the thing that was bothering him maybe was that he thought he had a leg up in life and then he was going to get ahead. And he thought that that was a shortcut, just having some girlfriend who ended up taking advantage of him the whole time when he wasn't appreciating what he already had. Yeah. So that's why now that we're able to talk about the music scene, that was interesting to me is I was wondering, what is it that prevents Dave from ever, because he, he does like three takes of the drums and he still can't wish away enough to be able to play the drums well. And then I, I thought about it, like maybe that's his version, like Andrew says no. I don't want to forget. Maybe that is his version of, I don't want to forget that I suck at the drums. I want to actually start being who I am. Hmm. Because right after that, he says, it just occurred to me, we're doing all this stupid stuff, even though we've been friends for so long. Let's just do that. And so maybe he is sort of, sort of starting to come around in that way. So to answer your question in the long run, because all that stuff is interpretive, depending on you know audience members, etc. Phrase the question for me again, how you did, Andrew. What does the film say about friendship, you said? Yeah, that's exactly what I said. What do you think? I think that that where it may have hit the whimsy nail on the head that does resonate with me is that it is making a statement about how there is this popular conception that true friendship is unconditional. And I think it might be driving the point that it needs to be totally conditional because if it's not, you're not going to learn things together and grow as people. And so a true friendship might and in the end with you two having been through all of it together all the bad stuff included hmm. and the point would be to have an outlet that's not the mindset of unfortunately where they are the whole film something's wrong in their life you get to blame it on the closest person to you especially if that's the only person you got yeah and if you do that you might end up with only one body part <laughs> <laughs> your head so and i mean honestly i like i know that sounds sort of comical but it's sort of true because the story could have been about a guy and his girlfriend and it, they could have done the male female persona thing it could have been about yeah. any sort of relationship mother father daughter son what or uh watch your me. language mother father mother father <laughs> 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 I like that because that's actually something I say a lot when I don't want to curse and you just caught me doing it accidentally <laughs> like out in the wild so ultimately I think I sort of fail to see enough that it's almost like I wanted to see resolution in them too it sort of it sort of seemed like the resolution was for them to end the film in the same way that the film sort of climaxes which is that they realize they can kind of do anything and they're having fun even just looking at bouncing balls in the middle of nothing and the resolution ends up being the exact same thing so it's basically i guess my take on it is if you accept these characters for their vapid accepting of anything in the real world then there was a total resolution because they finally came to this sort of understanding together that they need so little including most of their own bodies in order to remain friends I guess the problem I have with that story, just as a straight-up story, is that doesn't fix their real-world problems, which caused that whole right. thing in the first place. Now, is there real world even a real world, or is this thing a full replacement? We don't have the answers. That's a good question. That's a good thing for you to assert. I guess I would say I still sort of stick to my guns on that because even if it is implied that there's not a real world, there is a world that is real to them. And that's the only world that we know. There's at least two worlds that are real to them. It's all about them. It's about what they feel. It's first person emotional. And so under that notion, clearly there's something driving them mad to begin with. So let's call that real world. And that thing yeah. is not dealt with in the end. Yes. 
Right. You're right. That's it. And that might just be what the door is. Some sort of real world working itself back in. With right. the door, the ball, the crowd, and the elephant. Yes. And the elephant. So that's a good tie that's a good tie together. Yeah, that's pretty much it. That's how I f- yep. So, Lauren, mm. would you recommend this film? Absolutely. To I anyone. Think- yeah. On a scale of maybe you, most people, and everyone, I would say most people. There are going to be people... Oh, cool. Yeah, I would recommend it to most people. I mean, like, I would say that a lot of people just have this really sort of strict particular taste about what they watch, and you're going to be able to find out just by watching the trailer if that's your jam or not. If it's not, don't waste your time. But I would say most people, even if it's people that, like, it kind of frustrates them to sit through, just do it. Because there is the spark of something about this film that you should see it with a friend yeah and then talk about it which is what we just did yeah (laughs) right well thank you very much lauren i very much appreciate of course your opinion i appreciate yours as well it's been a long time coming too i agree well done thank you everybody good night go ahead and say good night lauren oh good night lauren Foot, destroying termite, kill, kaput. Rubber, sole of inflatable foot, destroying termite, kill, kaput. Rubber, sole of inflatable foot, destroying termite, kill, but his